I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What, my dear Lady Disdain, are you yet living? Is it possible Disdain should die while she hath such meat food defeated as Signor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to Disdain if you come in her presence. Then is courtesy a turncoat? But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you excepted. And I would I could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. I thank God in my cold blood I am of your humor for that. I'd rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. God keep your ladyship still in that mind, so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinated scratched face. Scratching could not make it worse, and were such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue and so good a continuer. But keep your way, in God's name. I have done. You always end with a jade's trick. I know you of old. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, playing the part of Benedict, trading barbs with my guest, Dr. Tiffany Schubert as Beatrice. William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing has it all. Heroes, villains, loyalty, betrayal, hatred and love, serious crime and silly sidelights. At one point, it veers dangerously close to utter tragedy, only to come right again, with true love conquering even the coldest hearts. I asked Dr. Schubert to begin by giving us an overview of the play. Much Ado About Nothing focuses on two pairs of lovers. First are Beatrice and Benedict, and then Hero and Claudio. And Beatrice and Benedict are, to be honest, the much more interesting pair. Uh, the pair that everybody loves, or the pair that begins insulting each other, divided from each other, neither one seemingly particularly interested in love or marriage, brought together through the deceit and trickery of some of the major characters in the play. Claudio and Hero, on the other hand, fall in love, well, sorry, Claudio falls in love with Hero uh, at first sight, and their courtship proceeds fairly quickly. However, uh, there's a villain in the piece, and this is, this is Don John, who interferes and slanders Hero's good name. She's then rejected by Claudio and seems to, within the play, die. But this is, in fact, actually just all all a charade that actually stirs Claudio to remorse. And in the end, Hero is revealed to be alive. She and Claudio are united in marriage. And then uh, even after that, we actually see Beatrice and Benedict come together, both realizing that they've been tricked into love, but actually genuinely declaring their love for each other. Now, how do they get tricked into love? How does that happen? <laughs> It's, it's really quite brilliant. You've got uh, Don Pedro, who is uh, one of the most socially important characters in, in the play. He's a guest at uh, the house of Leonato, who is the father of Hero. He decides that would be great fun, uh, something of a lark, really, to bring Beatrice and Benedict together. So what they do is 
the the men get together as a group and start loudly talking to each other about how much Beatrice loves Benedict. And they present her as being profoundly, deeply in love with him. Uh, but then they slander Benedict as being cold and heartless, right? and who's someone who will never, could never possibly accept her. And Hero and her ladies basically then do the same thing for for Beatrice. I stage a conversation that she overhears in which they depict Benedict as being in love with her, as being, a, you know, a, a, basically a great catch, but Beatrice is too cold, too proud, too haughty to ever accept him. So both of them are sort of repulsed by this image of themselves and resolve to basically humbly, uh, humbly accept themselves as lovers. Yeah, they, they seem to accept themselves as lovers at the end feigning a certain amount of, well, yeah, well, I'm not really your lover, but I guess I love you and we'll marry. Absolutely. And I think we would love Beatrice and Benedict less uh, if they didn't have that sort of, that pretense and the kind of feigning there. How is it, though, that, that, that Beatrice manages to fall for this ploy? I mean, Benedict is sort of this guy's guy, uh, warrior. She seems a little more savvy than that. I think there's a couple of answers to that. One might simply be that there's some kind of relationship that they had previous to the events of the play. We're not entirely sure what it is, but but Beatrice will say, she says, right, I, I know you of old, and then she'll talk about giving her heart to him. So there might be some indication that there actually was some attachment between the two of them um, beforehand. So that might explain in part her, her, her readiness or her eagerness to fall in love with him, so to speak, when she hears that he's in love with him. Part of it is, I think, also they, the, the conspirators do a really phenomenal job right, of painting to Beatrice this image of herself, uh, a kind of a cold, distant, uh, unapproachable lady. And, and that's not who Beatrice is, nor is it who she wants to be. So she, I think she actually, she seems to choose this really right deeper, uh, deeper person to be this person who is actually capable of, of love rather than someone who is uh, harsh and cruel. Someone who would say uh, who is a kind of the the ideal courtly lady who sort of held held up but doesn't actually really respond to love. Beatrice Beatrice rejects that. Now, how is she the same or different from other strong-willed Shakespearean women? Yeah, I think specifically of Kate in The Taming of the Shrew, who is also sharp-tongued and angry, and you know, but who is tamed very quickly. I think with Kate, ang- anger is is maybe the the key term there. Right, that Kate Kate is angry in her in her strength, right, in her wittiness, in her in her in her shrewishness, um, and Beatrice is not. Right. Beatrice talks about she's being she's um, born under a merry star. Uh, I think something something kind of like that. Uh, that that laughter, or maybe that's said about her. Um, but either way, there's mer- merriment is associated with Beatrice. Uh, that's part of what she actually I think part of what she represents within the play right, is this kind of merry, mirthful, festive, festive spirit. And Kate, Kate is strong, um, but she lacks that. Mm-hmm. Well, Beatrice, mm-hmm. in, in the uh, in the part of the play that we read at the beginning of this podcast, you know, it's playful banter. I mean, it's you know, it's barbs, but it's kind of playful. 
whereas Kate throws things. Yeah, that's right. Yes, she does. Um, and Kate is being right, controlled by her father, right, in a way that Beatrice that Beatrice doesn't seem to be. Um, but Beatrice, Beatrice actually has an extraordinary freedom uh, in in the play. Right? She's not actually really under anybody's anybody's sway in the way that maybe Kate is at the beginning. Um, I think a lot of what really disturbs us, right, about the Taming of the Shrew is that we see, oh, the strong, right, strong, forceful, vibrant, animated woman kind of being controlled. Um, but there, I think what we, what's going on is, is in a way sort of similar to what happens to Beatrice, right, that get, what Petruchio does for Kate is to basically act the way that she is acting towards other people, right? So he actually, he models her behavior to her. And I think part of what she's realizing is that how unpleasant, and not just unpleasant, but um, how lacking in in virtue, and how, and ultimately how unhappy that kind of that kind of behavior is making is making her and making those around her right. So it's a sort of I'm holding up an image to you, and you're repulsed by that image, and you're striving for something higher, which I think is similar to what's happening with Beatrice. And I think we can see that in Kate, Kate's is not utterly defeated or destroyed in The Taming of the Shrew, but I think she actually enters into Petruchio's playfulness by the end uh, of that. It's a comedy, it's fun, and at the same time, there is this downright diabolical plot in the middle of it. And uh, things look like they're (laughs) turning into King Lear or something by the middle of it. How How does that plot shift work in the play yeah it's 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 fairly amazing uh shakespeare's able to do this right? it, it's light-hearted and 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 playful or lots of trickery and then suddenly yeah suddenly we're, we're plunged into this darkness this seems to be just part of shakespearean drama is this, his ability to sort of turn on the dime from from the playful to to the deadly um and that's primarily figured in Don John, who is who is the, the evil the evil character uh, in the in the play. And I think what we're seeing uh, in that is is the sort of well, the war of Don John's melancholy with Beatrice's merriment. Okay, so so Don John, we learn from the very beginning of the play when we first see him, he's sad, and has some reasons for being sad, but he actually, he tells us that his sadness is without measure. It's not actually proportionate to anything that's happened. He's in, he sort of is this, this uh, spirit, spirit of sadness that threatens to, to envelop and overwhelm the world of the play, right? Uh, and so it's, I think, part, right? His spirit of, sort of, melancholy, the, of threatening the world, right, of joy and of merriment, the, the world of comedy. And, uh, Strangely enough, this dark, evil plot, which leaves Hero just bereft and pretending to be dead, is undone by the local constabulary, including Dogberry and Virgis. How do those two and their malapropisms fit into the play? Oh, villain, thou wilt be condemned to everlasting redemption for this. Shakespeare, uh, I think, seems really attuned to the humbleness of grace. Uh, uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, 
there's a line about fairy grace. Uh, right? And so in, in, in that play, grace comes to the characters, the grace right, of, of redemption and deliverance comes to the characters through, through the fairies, uh, whose magic you know, makes things better, but also causes, causes problems. Um, and, and much ado about nothing, we've got Dogberry and, and Fergus there. And so, so Shakespeare, who, who are, along with the friar, are the vehicles of grace, the vehicles of deliverance within the play, but they're absurd and ridiculous. Uh, so I think Shakespeare is sort of aware that grace comes in all shapes and sizes and forms and levels of, of linguistic skill. I seem to remember St. Paul saying something about God uh, using the foolish to shame the wise. That's right, yeah. Uh, I, I think Shakespeare's really, really attuned to that. Is this really much ado about nothing? Or <laughs> is the play aptly named, do you think? Uh, yeah, um, so nothing is, as with so many things in Shakespeare, a pun. Right? So, of course, it does mean uh, nothing. But in Shakespearean English, it would have been pronounced noting. So you could also read it as much ado about noting. And noting happens all over this play. People are always noting what other people are doing, right? Observing what other people are doing and spreading that. And that's actually part of what gets us into, into the mess with Hero. Is it, right? They've noted what has happened, supposedly, right, between Hero um, and, and another man. Uh, it's, been, it's been noted. Um, and, and so all of this noting that causes all of the problems, all the commotion. But certainly with Hero could say, right, all the noting has actually really been about nothing, right? So there really has been, uh, with her, much ado about nothing. Some years ago, in the middle of the summer, a group of us packed up a picnic along with plenty of copies of Shakespeare's script, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Then we lounged on blankets on the grass, ate, drank wine, assigned parts, and performed with one another A Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, it's still spring. Midsummer's night is only a dream for most of us still. So why not call together some friends and while away the evening reading Much Ado About Nothing or some other Shakespeare play? It's a painless and highly entertaining way to, as Cole Porter put it, brush up your Shakespeare. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.